Today's sermon is taken from 1 Peter 1, verses 15 to chapter 2, verse 3. Hear the word of God. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good." Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Joanna. All right. So, friends, today we're going to continue through our series through the book of 1 Peter. We've been going uh, through it uh, a few weeks now. And I'm going to cover a lot of verses today. We're going to go from chapter 1, verse 15, to chapter 2, verse 3. And as I go through it, I want to ask you to remain patient with me because the passage is just going to force me to kind of go on things that may seem like tangents. And I'm going to try my best to tie all those tangents up into one neat line, hopefully at the end. But if it does feel like it's a bit tangented, um, bear with me, okay? It's all going to make sense at the end. And if you've been with us, you know why Peter wrote this book, this letter, okay, it's to encourage Christians who were at the time being persecuted and exiled by the culture that they were in, okay, under the emperor Nero, as, as history tells us. And Peter wanted to comfort them. He wanted to encourage them. Keep going, you know, keep living out, keep, keep hanging on to the gospel that God has revealed to you. And how does he encourage them to do that? By proclaiming the salvation that God has given them over and over and over again. He proclaims the gospel to them over and over again. That's all he's been doing in chapter one and continues to do that in our passage today. But what we see him do today is in the midst of him comforting them, not only does he comfort them, but also he starts to challenge them. He starts to give them things to do. He's explaining here that the gospel isn't just something to receive. It's also a power that changes our whole lives into holy living. And what Peter explains here in our passage today, I think actually answers a a question that I hear a lot. Uh, A lot of people in modern Jakarta today ask us. So, so. Hang in, hang in there with me. Let, let's dive in. There's three things in this passage that I want to point out about how God redeems. One is that God redeems our whole person. Two, God redeems our very nature. And three, God redeems our total eternity. Okay, God redeems our whole person, our very nature, our total eternity. Let's jump to the first point. God redeems our whole person. 
Last week, we talked about verses 15 and 16 very briefly, but due to time constraint, I couldn't cover the whole thing. But it's important to explore those verses deeper, so I'm going to include it again this week. Verse 15 to 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, there's a huge question that I hear a lot, especially maybe everywhere, but especially in Jakarta, I hear this all the time. Many of us have come up to me and asked me the question, you know, I, I, I just can't believe in Christianity. I can't believe in Christianity that, you know, Jesus died for my sins and that my sins are forgiven on the cross and that whole thing. Because if that way of salvation is true, then what's going to stop Christians from continuing to sin? Right? What's going to stop Christians from just sinning over and over and over again if their sins are forgiven on the cross? Where well, here's, here's the answer, verse 15 to 16. It's interesting. After Peter tells these Christians that their sins are redeemed by the cross for the first 14 verses, now he commands them to be holy because God is holy, which is a quote from Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. And this should be a bit confusing to you. Okay, because you should be thinking this. Well, I thought the whole point of the first 14 verses is that, Peter, you're telling me I'm already holy in Christ. The death of Christ has made me holy and righteous and I'm forgiven. And if that's true, then why are you telling me to pursue holiness if I've already been made holy, right? Am I holy or am I not yet holy? Which, which is it? So let me try and explain it with an analogy. And it's not a perfect analogy, okay? So like any analogies, none of them are perfect. So if you want to pick holes in it, you can. And you probably should. Just don't email them to me, okay? <laughs> Write them down and bring it unto the Lord. Okay. You can email me if you want. Here's the analogy. Have you ever guys heard the success story behind McDonald's? Have you? So at first, it was just a small mom and pop shop, right? Owned by brothers named Mac and Dick McDonald. It was a small drive-in restaurant, had tons of things wrong with it. They had a few branches, uh, but it was really messy, okay? And they tried hiring some staff, the McDonald's brothers, tried hiring a bunch of people to fix different parts of the company, but it never really got fixed properly because only bits and pieces were fixed uh, of the company because the people that they hired were personnels who only had the capacity to fix the particular department that they were placed in, okay? Nothing, no actual good meaningful change happened until they hired a guy named Ray Kroc. Ray Kroc, in one of the articles that I read, described him as a visionary. He was a visionary. No matter what kind of business he had pursued over his life, this is from the article, he dreamt big. From selling milkshake machines to flipping real estate in Florida, his goal was always to be the best. Ray was just that kind of guy. Okay, Whenever he takes on a project, he, when he takes on something, he thinks about the whole project, every detail. He's a bit OCD. Okay, when he takes ownership over something, his personality is such that he can't let even the slightest imperfections go. He's meticulous. When he used to renovate houses, he would put attention to every detail. And that's exactly who the McDonald's brothers needed. Ray took this messy McDonald's fast food chain and revamped every single tiny detailed part of the company, setting it on its current course now. Why? Because that's just who he is. He's that kind of guy. He's not the kind of guy who does things halfway, partially. When he takes on a project, he takes on all of it. See, 
okay, again, it's not a perfect analogy. This is how God is kind of described to be in verse 16. He's perfectly holy. He's holy, meaning everything about him is perfect. And friends, when God takes on a redemption project, because he's perfectly holy in his whole being, he cannot take on projects halfway. Yes, he redeems your eternal status of holiness. Yes, purchased on the cross by the blood of Christ. Yes, which is what Peter has been preaching to us the first 14 verses. But because he is holy, he cannot just revamp your eternal status from guilty sinner to holy and righteous without caring about your actual day-to-day holiness and righteousness here on earth. He can't do that. It's just not him. Look, if you're a Christian and God has redeemed you through Christ and he's made your eternal status holy, good, hallelujah, praise him. But what about your day-to-day holiness and righteousness here on earth? What about your anger issues? What about my inability to love others because I'm too busy comparing myself with them all the time? What about my subtle, deep racisms? Hmm? You tell me that doesn't exist in Jakarta? What about my ability to share helpful information, but really I just wanted to gossip? What about my greed? What about my amazing ability to obey God when everything in my life is good and well, but I immediately take the wheel back whenever things aren't going well? What about that? What about the fact that 90% of the time, my prayers is all about me? Think about them. Look, God, like Ray Kroc, doesn't do things halfway. He's perfect and holy. He can't just redeem your eternal status of righteousness without also dealing with your daily righteousness on earth. That's not who he is. When he takes on a project, he can't do it halfway. He will make you grow in holiness here on earth unto the image of Christ because he has made you holy eternally through the blood of Christ. See, this is totally opposite to other world religions. Other world religions generally, right, say this. You need to pursue holiness on earth. And if if you're able to pursue holiness on earth satisfactorily, then God will give you the reward of eternal holiness. On a nutshell, that's, that's what works-based religion says. If you're able to live holy on earth, God will give you the gift of eternal righteousness. The rules may be different, right, between each religion. The standards may be different between each religion. The rewards may be different between each religion. But generally, the bottom line, that's a principle. But that's not what the gospel says. The gospel flips that order around. The reason why you're growing in earthly holiness It's because because God has given you through Christ an eternal holiness. He's dealing with your sin problem holistically, both its eternal consequences and its earthly realities. That's what it means to be redeemed. And if you aren't finding within yourself any desire whatsoever to pursue holiness here on earth in any way, If that's just not a thing for you, if that's not a deep lasting conviction, Peter here is saying, you gotta at least consider. You gotta at least consider the possibility that your sins may not have been forgiven by God through Christ eternally. You gotta at least consider that. You know, but I've received Christ when I was younger. You know, I was baptized when I was younger. I go to church every Sunday. Okay, yes, but are you growing in holiness? 
Are you becoming more like him? See, it's impossible that God would care so much about the reality of your sin eternally, yet care less about the reality of your sin here on earth. When he takes on a project, he takes on the whole thing. That's why in verse 17, Peter can call him, look at it, both father and judge at the same time. And if you call him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Christians, conduct yourself with fear. Um, in the time of your exile. He judges impartially, meaning that it's the same for everyone. See, many people think that after I receive Christ and I become a Christian, God kind of becomes less worried about my sin, right? When I, he's kind of more tame about it. He's, he cares, he's not, as, he's not as angry about it. No, he's very much still angry at every one of them. He judges, what does it say? Impartially. Impartially means the same, Christians or non-Christians. So conduct yourself with fear. He's talking to Christians here. Conduct yourselves with fear. Be afraid of God. God is God and sin is sin. Whether the one who commits them is a Christian or a non-Christian, he judges impartially. But the difference is, for the Christian, all that wrath, God is still wrathful, but all that wrath has been put on the cross. But he's still wrathful about it, but it's been put on the cross. Meaning Christians don't fear God in the same way that non-Christians do. Stick with me. This may be one of those tangents, but I'll bring it back, okay? Non-Christians fear God, okay, which is what, again, the basis of other world religion. You fear God in order to escape punishment. That's what Martin Luther calls servile fear. I think that's how you pronounce it. Servile fear from the Latin. It's a fear that prisoners would have towards their jail tormentor, okay? They obey because if they disobey, they get tormented. That's not the fear Christians have. Christians have what Luther calls filial fear, coming from the word family. There's a fear and a reverence that a child would have towards a perfect parent. Okay, it's not a fear driven by pain, but love. The child doesn't want to disappoint the parent. Not because if they disappoint the parent, they're going to lose the parent's love, but rather because the child is afraid of displeasing the parent who is, in that child's world, the source of security and love. It's a filial fear. You know how spoiled kids are made? You know how they're made? Spoiled kids are made when kids can think that they get away, they can get away with anything because the parents have status and power. That's how spoiled brats are made. The kid thinks they can get away with anything because mommy and daddy has money and power. Okay? And usually, we judge people like that, right? But if I'm honest, that's often how I view the gospel. I struggle with that. I don't know if you can relate with me, but I struggle with that. I think that somehow I can get away with a little bit more sin here on earth because my eternal status in Christ has been redeemed. That's the same exact recipe that creates spoiled children. But when God adopts a child, he means to make them Holy, not spoiled. See, if you view God merely as a loving father and not an impartial judge, you're going to be spoiled because you have no fear at all. But if you only view God as an impartial judge and not a loving father, you're going to be crushed because of severe fear. But if you hold on to both, you know what will happen? You'll grow in holiness, driven by his love, 
which brings with it a healthy dose of filial fear. And see, you don't really find this filial fear in any other world religions. Let me, let me connect it back to that. Because in order to have it, you've got to hold on to God's holy justice and holy uh, love at the same time. This is why verse 18, Peter says to these Christians, look, what, I'm be- what I've been preaching to you, this whole gospel, it's different. It's different than the ways you've inherited from your forefathers. Who were their forefathers? They were religious people. The Jewish religion, the Roman and Greek gods, they're religious people. Peter's saying, this isn't that. This, Christ- this Christianity is not the same as the works-based, you know, you do good and then you'll be saved religion that your forefathers have been preaching. You know, I got to please God in order to be saved. That's not what this is. Because that, a works-based religion, thinking that I can save myself unto eternal holiness, unto eternal salvation, that doesn't hold on to God's justice Neither does it hold on to God's holy love. You, you can't do that at the same time. What do I mean? Here's what I mean. Just consider. Consider what implications do work-based religion, I save myself by doing good, have on God's perfect holy justice and perfect holy love? What does it do? If one claims that they can save themselves by their morality or their personal ability to do good or their religiosity, What implications does that have on God's holy, perfect standard of justice? Let's talk about that first. It decreases it. Why? Because if I, a mere man, am able to live in such a way that can satisfy and fulfill God's holy standard of justice, how holy is it really? How high is it really? How perfect is it really? If I can do that, And if I can save myself through my own morality, consider the implications that that philosophy has on God's holy standard of love. It decreases it too. How so? Because if God only loves the very few people who is able to accomplish his holy standard of justice, then how high and wide and deep is his love really? If you think you can save yourself, if you think you could ever be good enough to earn God's love, consider the implications. You have to say that his justice isn't that high and his love isn't that deep, right? If I can be saved by just doing more good and bad. But the Christian, see, is able to call God holy judge with perfect, utmost, infinite justice, unreachable by any man, and also holy father, perfect, holy, utmost, infinitely loving at the same time. Why? I'm going to continue the passage and I'm going to connect all this together. How can the Christian claim that? Look at verse 18 to 19. Peter here says, God's justice is infinitely high. Look at verse 18 to 19. What did it take to satisfy God's justice? Not perishable things like silver or gold or human effort, but the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Hmm? Let's take a look at our passage. Apparently, we just read, stick with me, this is important, that Jesus Christ is able to forgive sins committed to God. Who does that make him? If Ryan slaps Gray in the face right now, and I go up and say, you're forgiven, Ryan, don't worry about it. Gray's going to be like, bump that, what? He slapped me, not you. 
I don't get to forgive Ryan because he didn't commit the sin to me. He committed the sin to Gray. But yet here, Jesus is able to forgive sins committed to God. Who does that make him? Hmm? Verse 19 says he was perfect without blemish or spot, referring to his moral character. Who is the only one who has holy and perfect character that we just read in our passage? Verse 20 says, he was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for you. Not that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but then was created at the last time for you. No, no, no. He was made manifest, meaning that now you can see him. He came down in flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ in his incarnation. Made manifest. He's always existed, but he was made manifest. Who could that be? Verse 21, God gave Jesus glory. That sound weird to you? It should, because the God I know shares his glory with no one. Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. But yet Jesus has it. Who is this Jesus? Who can forgive sins committed to God, who has the same moral perfection described only of God, who existed before the foundations of the world and shares the same glory with God. Who is he? He is the eternal, invisible God. That's what the Bible's trying to say, who came into this world, made manifest to us. What does this mean? Here's a connection. What does it mean? This is the good news. That the one who died for you on the cross was God himself. Christianity says God is the only one who can satisfy his own justice. You see the implications on how high God's justice is? It's infinitely high. No man can reach it. Nothing less than the precious blood of God himself can satisfy his own perfect and holy justice. It's holy. And you see what implications that has on God's love? Hmm? What does it say God did for you? Who did God give you? How much are you worth to him? Christianity says that you can be saved because on a cross, God gave nothing less than himself for you. Tell me how perfect is his love. The gospel is the only system that can hold on to God's holy justice and holy love at the same time. Okay, let's summarize point one. The other two points won't be as long. Okay. Point one, the Christian is saved not because they're able to satisfy God's sense of justice by obeying his laws. Try doing that. It'll crush you. It'll make you run away from the church. And neither is a Christian saved because God started to just care less about their sins. No, that'll spoil you. The Christian is saved because God, our holy father and our holy judge, who has perfect love and perfect justice, has perfectly loved us and perfectly satisfied the justice meant for us when he himself died on the cross for our sins and raised again in glory, making us eternally holy forever. And whomever he has made holy forever, he will work on their holiness on earth here, now, today. Why? Because that's just who he is. He's not the God that takes on part-time projects. He works on the whole. Okay. But that's still a bit confusing because this, I think, what might be confusing, how can I tell 
that my current pursuit of holiness on earth is actually a result of God working on my redemption holistically, and it's not just me doing, you know, the old do good and save yourself, futile religious works-based salvation that I've been taught my whole life by my forefathers, perhaps. Okay? How can I do that? But my pursuit of holiness is not to gain salvation, but because I have been saved. Second point, God redeems our very nature. How can you know that growing in holiness, you're doing it because you've been redeemed eternally? Okay? Because of these, if, if, if that's true, you're going to be able to obey these two obscure, weird commands. I'll, I'll come back to why it's obscure. Okay? Look at verse 22. First command. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The first command, you have to purify your souls by obedience to the truth. Note, it didn't say having purified your souls by obedience to the law, but the truth. What is the truth? It's this gospel, this good news that you've been that God has come and redeemed you and loved you and saved you and died for you. But think about that. This is why it's obscure. This is why it's weird. How do you obey a good news? I know how to obey a law by doing it, right? Any religious person can obey a law. That's how work-based religions work. But how do you obey a good news? Well, by receiving it by embracing it, by resting in it, by rejoicing of it. That's the first command. You can tell that your current pursuit of holiness on earth is because God is holistically working on you because he's already redeemed you eternally rather than motivated by your own means to, to earn salvation on your own is one, if you're able to find rest and joy in the gospel. Put simply, here it is. Does the gospel make you happy? We can make things so complicated. That's what it's saying. Does the gospel make you happy? Does it stir joy in your heart? You know why I said this is obscure? Because it's an internal kind of command. You know? You can't make your heart feel it if you're not already feeling it. If you're sitting here today and you haven't ever tasted the joy of the gospel, try doing it. Try shouting at your heart right now. It's not going to obey because it's an internal kind of command. You know? It's obscure. We'll get back to that again. There's a second obscure command in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, referring to other Christians, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Again, how do you obey this one? It's equally obscure. You know, command me to give money to Christians. I can do that. I can command my hands to reach in my pocket and take money out and put in the offering bag. Like, I can do that, you know? Command me to give my time to Christians. You know, I can force myself to sit and not, not up my mouth and just listen to their problems all day long. I can command myself to do those things because those are external kind of commands. But what's commanded here is an internal heart command. You think about the last time you didn't love somebody and you had to force yourself to love them. Was it as easy as flipping a switch? Was it as easy as putting your hand in your pockets and giving money out? It was much harder, wasn't it? Because it's an internal heart command. You can't make your heart love something you don't. Now, here's my point. Peter here, remember the question is, how can I know that my growth in holiness is because I've been redeemed, not in order to gain redemption? P Peter gave two internal obscure commands because 
Heart commands are different than behavioral commands. Heart commands aren't primarily meant to test your strength. They're primarily meant to reveal your nature. They're not meant to test your strength. They're meant to reveal your nature. Look, tell a durian tree to bear apple fruit. It's not going to be able to do it. And the person giving the command isn't actually doing it so that the durian tree would bear apple fruit. They know that can't, they can't do it. They gave the command so that the durian tree would see and stop fooling themselves and realize, my goodness, this whole time I thought I was an apple tree. But I can't do it. Like, look, I'm trying really hard. I can't do it. Why not? Because you're not an apple tree. Look. If you're not rejoicing in the gospel, if you're not happy about it, if, you're, if it's not stirring your heart, and if you don't find a filial commitment with other people that do, you have to consider the fact you may not be a Christian. Can I say that on Easter? Just consider it. Think about it. It reveals your nature. And if you can't, if you can do those, do those things, that means you have been redeemed by God. Eternally, he has set you upon himself in Christ. That's why he's working on you now. Your very nature has been changed by God. You know, if you're just generally religious, if you're pursuing holiness in order to be saved, you're not going to rejoice in the gospel. It's not going to make sense to you. And if you're just generally religious, you're not going to understand and connect with people who also are rejoicing in the gospel. You're not going to feel a filial love with them. They won't actually make sense to you. Why are you so happy about this? But if you're pursuing holiness on earth, yet at the same time rejoicing in the gospel, and you're finding in yourself a filial connection with other people that do, that means, verse 23, you've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. You know, how do plants, uh, how do seeds grow? You got to dig, dig the dirt. You got to put it deep in there. You got to cover it back up, right? That's the purpose of this analogy. And some of us, we've been coming to church every Sunday or maybe every Easter. And, and you've been coming for ages. And you've been hearing this thing over and over again. But it just never felt like it sunk in. You know? The word just kind of feels like it's ricocheting off hard soil. I mean, you might have got emotional a few times. And you might have been moved to action every now and then. But at the end of the day, his word just feels like it's remained outside of you. It hasn't seeped into you yet. It's, it hasn't germinated you. See, general religiosity says this. Change your nature, you know, try really hard to change your nature and be more holy on earth. And if you're able to do that, God's going to redeem you and make you holy eternally. The gospel says, God by grace has made you eternally holy in Christ. You can tell by seeing whether or not your internal heart inclinations and your external life actions are becoming more holy continuously now because God is a God who saves holistically. 
He has to change your nature. And look, if you feel like this good news has been ricocheting off of you, I, I can't do much. I really can't do much. See, what the preacher can do is preach the word of God to you. Is, is offer, look at the end of verse 25. The word of the Lord is the good news preached to you. This, this, this is the seed, which is, by the way, why exegetical and expositional preaching is so important for the preacher to actually come up here with a heart to expose God's word, the actual passage, the actual verses, the actual words. But even the best exegetical preachers who can wordsmith their way into the depths of anyone's soul cannot implant the gospel seed in your heart in a saving way. Only God can. But when he does, when God takes the living seed of his scripture and his gospel and he germinates you in it, it'll change your nature and it's imperishable. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flowers falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Which is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6 to 8. Okay. So this is how God redeems. Let's summarize again before the third point. One, for lack of a better way of explaining it, he recrocks you, okay? He redeems you and makes you holy, your whole person, your eternal status in Christ, and your day-to-day holiness on earth, point one. Point two, he redeems your whole person. Not just your external behaviors are changed, but your very nature, your internal heart dispositions, Evidence by the way your heart rejoices in the gospel and feel a connection with others who do. But three, he also redeems our total eternity. Our last point. God redeems our total eternity. Let's go to chapter two, verse one now. Peter says, after all this, he says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Let's just stop there. What does this tell you already? What does this tell you? Remember again, Peter's addressing Christians here who's been made holy and growing is growing in holiness. But yet Peter says, put away all malice, put away all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy and slander. This tells you that Christians can still struggle with what? With malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. If not, Peter won't tell them to put them away. These are pretty basic sins, you know, but even them, even them we still struggle with. Malicious just means you're being mean and ugly to one another. Deceitfulness, hypocrisy, slander, I think they kind of go hand in hand, you know, because when you're being hypocritical, that means you're being nice to people in front of their faces, but you actually don't like them at all. And you're lying, you're being deceitful about it, because as soon as they turn their backs, you slander them, you gossip, you talk bad about them. Do Christians struggle with that? Absolutely. You want to know where the latest church gossip is? Go to the next prayer meeting. You probably hear it there every now and then. We struggle with it. We do. Envy. Envy is a tricky one. You know, at heart, envious people also want to be envied. It's not really just about having what the other person has. At the heart of it, it's about wanting to be looked at by others in the same way that they're looking at the other person that they envy. That's at the heart of it. You can't love others when you're worrying about envying them or wanting to be envied all the time. Peter's saying, these are, I mean, 101 sins, you know, but you still struggle with them. Take them off, shed them off, put them, you don't need them anymore. That's not who you are anymore. You've been changed. 
Your nature's been redeemed. They still cling on to you, so take them off, put them off. Long for spiritual milk, which refers to the Bible, yes, but it's more than that. I want to say with Calvin, okay, it's not just the, the milk here isn't just the written Bible that's being preached right now. That, the analogy for that is seed, okay? This is milk. What is this spiritual milk? Yes, it's the word of God that's, that you can read, the Bible that can be preached, but it's also the word of God that's been implanted in you. Don't you feel it, Christian? See, we reform, reform people, we're very cautious about feelings for a good reason, I'd say, but we can't be so allergic to where we swing the pendulum all the way off the Bible itself. Milk here is referring to both the written word of God and the sensation that you have when God digs that gospel truth deep into your heart. You feel it, don't you, Christian? The joy of the gospel? A connection with other people who do? And if you feel that, keep going for it. Keep feeling it. Keep reading the Bible. Focus on those things. Think about them. You've tasted the Lord is good, haven't you? Or have you? If you have, push on. Keep cultivating those emotions, okay? That's how you grow and put off all the things that hold you back in your growth toward holiness. Keep listening to living and abiding word of God that is printed on the pages of the Holy Scripture, but also is living and active in the soil of your heart. And when you fall into sin, get back up, put them off, keep pursuing holiness. God has not let you go, and this is where we'll end. Why doesn't he let you? you some of you have been Christians here for 20, 30 years. You still envy. Some of us have been Christians here for 10, 40 years maybe. We still get jealous. You know, just check your heart the next time you go on Instagram. Right? Why doesn't God let you go? Why doesn't he get sick of you? Hmm? When we struggle every day with such basic sins, how patient can you really be? And worse ones than that. How can we know that the eternal redemption God has purchased will remain? Remember, because he is holy in justice and in love. And you're asking, what? I can find my assurance of salvation in the fact that God is just in his justice? Yes. How does that work? Look, if God makes you pay in the future for sins that he said he's already paid for by his own blood on the cross, what would that make him? That'd make him unjust. God will never demand payment for sins. Not your sins, Christian, if you've been redeemed. Why? Because he's paid for it. He'd be unjust to do so. And his justice is holy. He'll never punish you for sins that's been paid for. Hold on to that. Your envy may go on forever. His love will too. And that's it. He also loves his holy justice and his holy love. Look, it's not like he had to die for your sins in order to remain just. Okay, can you think of another way? Can you think of something else God could do about your sins to where he would remain just? Yeah, let you pay for him. Let me pay for him. He'd still be just. Justice would not be betrayed. But yet, 
he decided to pay himself because he loves you. He decided to take on every single ounce of sin that you have because of his mercy. He's just and he's loving. This truth is something you, you, you will rejoice in, not just individually, but communally with other believers. If God the Spirit has dug it deep into your heart and renewed you through it, praise God the Father who judges impartially. Praise God the Son who died in your place and resurrected unto an eternal holiness and glory that he now shares with us. And praise God the Spirit who took this word of truth and implanted it deeply into your hearts, something nobody up here can do. Rejoice, Christian, in this triune God who has satisfied his own justice so that he may love you eternally. Now grow in holiness because this is the word of God. And all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word the Lord remains forever. Let's pray. Father, I often swing the pendulum between wanting to run away from the church and wanting to just be done with all this holiness talk because I've perhaps felt your judgment more than your love. And I've realized within myself, I can't do it. And I swing back between that and just being careless about my sin, where I feel like because I have a holy, eternal king as a father, I can just do whatever I want. And I've been spoiled in my Christianity. And forgive me, Father, for both of those is a redaction of your holiness. But you are a holy judge and a holy father who's loved me and judges impartially and my sin still matters to you. And because you love me, because you've made me holy in Christ, you're working in my sin today. And let us hold on to the resurrected Christ, the one who has shown us the perfect justice and love of God, meeting in one person upon that cross and in the empty grave. And now, because it is finished, because you have purchased our eternal holiness for us, we can keep getting up and find the power to persevere even when we fail and take off all these sins that so easily entangle and be who we are, righteous, holy sons of God, not because of what we've done, but because of what you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.